St. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The church is on the brink of schism. It's on the brink of dividing and seemingly not getting back together. On either side, people, lay people, clergy alike, they are flinging their disappointments at each other. They are flinging their differing theologies at one another. And it seems as if there is no future in which we can stay together. One pastor put it this way. I have spent 20 of the best years of my life serving the church, in which I have grown closer to more people than I can count, people I call my friends. For a long time, it was my friendships within the church that kept me with the church. But for the sake of a high and holy cause, I must let all of those friends go. I can no longer live solely for myself, nor for the present age alone, but only for God and eternity. I have prayed, I have waited, and I must either submit to the way things are or leave. And I choose to leave. Another pastor said this. It's not just for the great number of Methodists across the world that we plead, not even for the millions we have yet to reach, but simply for the church herself. We wish to speak the truth in love. Treating people the way we have is simply wrong, cruel, and unjust in all parts and all principles because we have denied freedom, we have numbed the mind, we have killed the soul. How we have belittled particular individuals must cease now and it must cease forever and ever. One more. It matters not how we treat particular people. This is the way it has been, and it is the way it shall continue. The matters of individual liberties belong to Caesar. They don't belong to the church. Otherwise, God would have intervened by now. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've heard people talk about the church like this. Or maybe you've read about it in a newspaper. Great and powerful leaders in the church... They are looking through the legalities of separation because it seems like we can no longer remain together. Just as an aside, does, I, I seem to have forgotten. Does anybody know what year it is? 2020. What did you say, Randy? Brother Randy, you are wrong, my friend. It is not 2020. You know what year it is? I can't believe you all have forgotten. The year is 1844. The year is 1844. All those quotes I just shared with you from pastors... You might think I stole them off of Facebook pages or I heard about them when I was at Wawa. No, I took all those quotes from pastors in the year 1844. Do you know what happened in the year 1844 with the Methodist Church? We split. North and South. Do you know what we split over? Slavery. The people in the North believed that humans couldn't own other humans. The people in the South believed that people could own other humans. And we split in 1844. Those quotes I read for you were all from pastors leading up to the decision to split. One of the great ironies of the church, and in particular our church, is that we call ourselves the United Methodist Church and we are anything but united. The church in Corinth was similarly divided. In Paul's first letter alone, we can count at least 15 different problems that he has to address. 
Problems like lawsuits. Some of the members were trying to sue the other members of the church. Problems like idolatry. Some of them were worshiping false idols. Problems like prostitution. Some of them were selling their bodies to other members in the church to be prostitutes. But here, at the very beginning, right after Paul says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he gets right down to business about partisanship, about divisions. Today, we're not entirely sure how it happened or even why it happened, but the Corinthian Christians, they factionalized under different leaders. Some followed Paul, some followed Cephas, some followed Apollos. And the disrespect they had for the different leaders, it fluctuated down to having disrespect for the individual Christians in the community, so much so that the Corinthian Christians were refusing to take communion with each other. They were refusing to do the one thing that makes us Christian. It doesn't make any sense. How? How in the world could an organization that is founded upon the principles of inclusion descend into division? How can a people who are told to love their neighbors as themselves can't even love their neighbors in the pews with them? How can something as united as a church break down into different factions? Those questions were asked in Corinth. Those questions were asked in 1844. And those questions are still being asked today. It doesn't make sense. The gospel itself doesn't make a lot of sense. As I said last week, I'll be saying every week as we're looking at 1 Corinthians, grace is really, 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 really messy. And grace is not simple. For God, what God did makes no sense to us. It makes no sense because we would not have done what God did for us if it were up to us. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation made available to all is contrary to everything we think we know about the world and even at times contrary to everything we think we know about the church. I mean, is the gospel really for all? What about real sinners? Let your mind wander about who a real sinner is. Is the gospel really for everybody? Do all sinners have a place in the church? How would we feel if all those outsiders came in here and said, I want to be an insider? We might bristle at the thought. We might not like the idea of the outsiders becoming the insiders. We might not like the idea of sinners coming in to receive grace. But that is exactly what Jesus was all about. I mean, faith, whatever it may be, is confounding. It is confounding precisely because it runs counter to so much of what we've been taught about the world. It's challenging to wrap our minds around this. Which is why we come back to church week after week hoping to chip away a little bit more about what this whole kingdom of God thing is. It is not simple. Of course, there are people, there are plenty of Christians out there who want us to believe that it is simple. That if you do these three simple things, your life will be fixed forever. If you do these three simple things, your church will be fixed forever. Countless books are sold on that premise alone. There have always been people who have tried to sell us a simpler or an easier version of church. But the word from Scripture, in particular today from Paul, is that if there are easy steps to a better church, if there are easy steps to a better life, then they're all completely bogus. The most challenging thing in life is to change. And to change requires more than easy steps. And we cannot do it on our own. That's why a community of faith is called a community of faith. It's not an individual of faith. We have to be there for each other in the midst of things being changed in ourselves. It can take a lifetime of coming to the table week after week after week before we really start to believe that Jesus would do for us what Jesus did for us. 
It can take decades of Sundays of hearing the gospel story before it actually starts to sound like good news and not bad news. It can take generations of patient faithfulness before we begin to see how the foolishness of the cross is everything and that everything hangs on it. Which leads us back to Corinth, leads us back to 1844 and back to the church today. All churches throughout all time have fallen prey to easy answers. And who can blame them? If people provide the answers we already want to hear, why not follow them? There have been countless Apolloses and Cephases over the centuries. Do you know what the easiest way to fix your church is? Get everybody who disagrees with each other and say, you all have to leave. Doesn't that just fix all the problems? I went down to North Carolina years ago, and they, in this community, they had just built a new Baptist church. I said, why are you all building a new Baptist church? You already have four Baptist churches. Why do you need another one? And they said, well, at first Baptist church, they got in an argument, and half the church left. They wanted to go start their own church. I said, well, what's the name of it? And they said, Harmony Baptist Church. <laughs> that is the story of the church since the days of Corinth. And the easiest way to fix your church, the easiest way to fix your life, is to cut out the things that you don't agree with. In other words, it's called tribalism. It's about orienting yourselves only around the people who agree with you. Only around the people who tell you what you want to hear. But the cross, it demands something far more difficult and far different. Most of us have come of age in a world in which we can see something like a cross... And it just seems vaguely religious. We wear it around our necks. We put it on top of our steeples. We have it on the wall in a sanctuary. And it just kind of looks like a T. This thing that's up there. But the cross is radical because the cross is death. The only way I could think today to recapture how radical this is, is instead of hanging crosses on our necks, we hung hypodermic needles. Or instead of putting a cross on the roof of our church, we put an electric chair. Or instead of having a cross here on the wall, we put a hangman's noose. Because the cross is how you execute people. It's how you kill the people who don't agree with you. It's how you get rid of the people you don't like. The cross is and forever will be a shocking thing. Because the cross is death. It's the only reason Paul can say the foolishness of the cross exists for the world. But to us... We're being saved. It is the power of God. The world doesn't want death. It wants all other signs of worldly power. And yet our king of kings rules from a cross. Remember, hands nailed to it, feet nailed to it. What does he use his final earthly breaths to say? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. We have no idea what we're doing. We are a people at war. And not necessarily in the conventional sense, but we are at war with each other these days. The United Methodist Church, the so-called United Methodist Church, is battling over who can marry who and who can get ordained. We are dooming ourselves to split again. Our partisan finger-wagging continues to divide families and friends and co-workers. We identify who is in and who is out by the name of a candidate on a bumper sticker more than the name of the person for whom we gather on Sundays. We write off people. Completely from our lives because of something they write on Facebook or something they say on television or something they say and mutter under their breaths to us. We cut people off completely. Our tribalism is going off the rails. And what's worst of all is I think we actually kind of love it. I think we kind of enjoy it. 
I think there's something weird in us, something broken in us that we like when we're fighting with people. The word of the cross is not easy to proclaim. It wasn't easy for Paul. It wasn't easy for the church in 1844. And it's certainly not easy today. Paul says it's a stumbling block to those who call themselves religious. It is foolishness to those who are secular. Because the cross stands as a beacon to something different. Something we would not choose for ourselves. Just for as much as the cross is a sign to the world about the forgiveness of sins, we often forget that it's a reminder that all of us have plenty of sins for which we need to be forgiven. Or to put it another way, we cannot look at this thing. We cannot look at the cross without confronting the inconvenient truth that we are the sinners for whom Christ died. We like to do something else. We like to say that we are right and everybody else is wrong. That I am good and they are a sinner. And we would rather hear a more uplifting, optimistic, hopeful word on a Sunday morning. But whether we like it or not, the thing we really want to hear that we're right and they're wrong. That I'm good and they're bad. That I'm saved and they're not. The cross tells us something different. The cross doesn't say that I'm right and you're wrong. The cross says we're all wrong. Everybody. Everyone in this room has done something they shouldn't have done. Everyone in this room has avoided doing something they should have done. Everyone in this room is a sinner. And everyone in this room is a sinner for whom Christ died. Jesus was put to death. Put to death by all the powerful people of his time, by the religious elite and the governing authorities. He was put to death by all the good people, all the people with the power. He was condemned by the best of us, and he went to be murdered on a cross next to criminals. That's a challenging thing for us to confront. Particularly those of us who feel really, really pious or really, really happy about everything that's going on in the world. Jesus went to the other side. He went to be with the people that we would rather ignore. He took his place upon the cross because we put him up there. And we hate that. We don't even want to get close to it. We don't even want to think about it. But Jesus, the one we love and adore, the one we worship on Sundays, he is on both sides. He's on the side of the victims and he's on the side of the perpetrators. He eats with sinners and he eats with saints. He speaks to the powerful and to the weak. That is why the gospel is overwhelmingly radical. Because when we say Jesus is for all, we really mean that Jesus is for all. We are not united. We have plenty of divisions that crop up between us each and every day. But there is something that does unite us. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus and what Jesus does. It is far more inclusive than we could ever possibly imagine. Because whether we like it or not, the gospel, the work of Christ, it refuses to divide us up. Refuses to divide up the correct from the incorrect, the righteous from the unrighteous, the innocent from the guilty. Jesus takes all of that into himself. Stretches out his arms on the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. That is foolishness according to the world. But for us, it is the power of God. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Amen. The Methodist Church split in 1844. Church of the North, Church of the South.
you go into Old Town Alexandria, there was a church. And two Methodist churches in Old Town Alexandria that were around at the time, and they split from one another three blocks away. One was a church for the north, and the other one was a church for the south. They still had those signs on those things. One of them today only has black people on it, and the other one only has white people on it. All since 1844. Do you know when we got back together? Anybody know what year the church decided to get back together? 1933. It took us 90 years to come back to that. 90 years to say, hey, you know what, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we should try to do this thing all over again. 90 years. Now, in that 90-year period, between 1844 and 1933, there was something strange that happened. Small little church in Richmond, Virginia, about five years after the Civil War. Church only full of white people. And they were getting ready to do communion. The church is sitting there dutifully, like all of you do on Sunday morning. And in the back, the door is open, and a black man, a former slave, came walking down the center aisle, and he knelt down at the altar, and he put his hands up to receive communion. And the church was completely silent. They weren't happy about it. They were very angry about it. And they were waiting for somebody to do something about it. And there was a man all the way in the back, an older white gentleman, who stood up, one of the most respected men in the church, one of the most respected men in the community, he started to come down the center aisle, and everyone started to relax. Oh, finally, he's going to tell that guy to get out of here. Thanks be to God. Except when he came down the aisle, this old white guy, you know what he did? He got down right next to him, and he put up his hands as well. Does anybody know what the name of that white man was? Robert Healy. General for the Confederacy. Five years after the Civil War. We are a people divided. Now that name, the person you wrote down, I can almost guarantee you that calling them isn't going to fix whatever going on. And this isn't just about like blindly getting back and fixing things that are problems. I mean, there are some things that are so broken that sometimes they can't be fixed. That's true. Because we're all sinful people and sometimes we let our sin divide us so horribly from each other. It's not about just giving up or anything like that. But things can change. I can't imagine what it must have been like for Robert Lee to come down and kneel at that thing. I can't imagine. But that is a taste of what we do every time we come to the table. You know, I, sometimes I think about the name of the person on here. On my worst days, I feel like he doesn't even deserve to come to the table. That's how much of a sinner I am. But there's always things to the table. That is a hard thing to confront. Even the worst person you can imagine has a space in the table. If the church doesn't stand for that, it stands for 